so there's a few things that I've got to just run through before we properly start. Um, and it's just to make you aware that we're already recording. It's set to auto record. So it just sure, yeah. records the whole thing anyway. Yeah, yep, no problem. Cool. So the uh, first few things is that my name's Emily Walker and I'm a volunteer for the Mental Health Foundation working within the Reclaim My Heritage project. Uh, the overall, uh, thank you for joining me today and we're having this today chat today to preserve your own memories of mental health and arts community in Scotland. The discussion is being recorded and you'll have the chance to listen back to this recording, make edits and approve the final version before it's transcribed. Uh, we can stop the interview at any time um, if you feel the need to. This can be for, a, for any reason, however you don't need to give a reason. Uh, this also includes muting and pausing your video because we're doing it over Zoom this time and not face to face. Uh, I will be asking questions and at this interview it's about you and your memory so I'm going to try and stay as silent as possible um, throughout the, the interview um, and yes you've already had the information seat, sheet and signed the consent form and recording agreement is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Great okay brilliant so um, the first few questions hopefully are nice and simple for you um, and it's really just to set the scene and, and get things started. So can you tell me your name, the year you were born, uh, where you grew up and what your professional and working background is? Uh, I'm Jerry Luce. Um, uh, born in uh, 1948, uh, which seems like a long time ago, and I guess it is. Um, I grew up between uh, England and Ireland. I have lived in Scotland since, I guess, Actually, I found a paper that tells me that uh, since 1983. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about your working or professional background, please? Um, I'm, uh, I, I'm a writer and artist. Uh, pr primarily, I guess, I'm known for uh, poetry, um, but many other things as well. Um, uh, my background also, because poets don't make a huge amount of money, is in um, well, agriculture, horticulture, um, I trained in ecology and environmentalism um, and uh, that kind of dropped by the way a long time ago and I became a, a professional writer rather than having two strings to the bow. But um, my concerns are very, very much with uh, the environment and um, the way we lead our lives on the planet. I guess. Um, and can you tell me what your first role within mental health and arts was and how that came about? And mental health and arts, I mean, it all kind of segues, you know, uh, some things don't start off like that, but, you know, mental health certainly, and other kinds of health and other kinds of uh, well-being, you know, disabilities, uh, um, learning difficulties and so on, they all kind of come together. So, you know, the mental health and arts bit is much later on. I started out, I guess, um, in Scotland, uh, <laughs> oddly, uh, I was trained as a facilitator on the, uh, with the US Navy uh, because of where I lived, uh, very close to Holy Loch in, uh, in Glendrewal. Um, and there was an American uh, nuclear presence there at the time, nuclear submarines in Holy Loch. And I trained as a facilitator on the Naval Alcohol, Drugs and Substance Abuse Pro Program which inevitably led me to realize that it wasn't the necessarily the 
you know those 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 things which were the problem only, but um, the states of mind which led people to to abuse any one of those things and a lot of other things besides. So things began to kind of gel for me that you know to make a book to take a much more holistic point of view than mental health together with arts in a little pigeonhole on the shelf there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, go on. No, on you go, sorry. No, no, uh, that was, that was uh, way back in uh, when I first arrived in 1983. Right, okay. For the best. <laughs> <laughs> and so from there was when you uh, began to piece together mental health with uh, alcohol and drug addiction, you were saying. And how did that then come into uh, your arts and your uh, poetry work? Um, well, in, into my own work as a poet, kind of peripherally, um, it, it, it led me to think about um, geopolitics, really, and the way we treat people on the planet and we, the way we treat the planet. Um, so that, that slowly fed into my work. Um, as a writer, um, I was... Um, at the same time, or very little later than that. Uh, <laughs> that's a long time ago. Uh, memory is a bit uh, hazy sometimes. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't live by dates necessarily, I live by events. Um, I was taking uh, writing workshops uh, for people with various uh, sorts of abilities and disabilities and mental health, uh, well-being issues. Um, so, you know, I was giving the benefit of my experience, not I, you know, very early on, I made a decision that I would, I would not treat anybody any differently from the way I would treat, treat, say, you or a personal friend with no apparent disabilities or health issues or or mental well-being issues. You know, so it was it was the poetry which allowed us to explore various things, but it wasn't the intention for it to be 100% therapeutic. It was coincidentally therapeutic. And that's, that's the kind of avenue that I've pursued all along, that everybody's basically the same and everybody can benefit from the arts. Um, so it was poetry and, you know, later on the visual arts that I came to sort of um, uh, work through with, with, with uh, various groups and under the umbrellas of, under the um, umbrellas of various organisations that I was involved with subsequent. And so... You mentioned their writing workshops. Um, was that the main activity that you did within this role? And was there other activities within that role? Uh, when, when you say this role, or what, what do you mean particularly? You don't mean the, the alcohol and drugs and substance abuse. You mean wider? Yes, yeah, sorry. So we started there, but obviously uh, I know you mentioned the other roles that then came subsequently yeah. because of that. So just more generally. Well, I also, as a freelance worker, I've always worked for myself, I've always been freelance. Um, I kind of joined the team of uh, something called Project Ability, which was based in Glasgow. Um, and there were so many activities that were taking place. We were based at the Third Eye Centre, as it was then. It's now obviously the, um, uh, what is it, CCA um, in Glasgow and Sophie Hall Street, although everything is closed at the moment, sadly. Um, and there were, there were just so many events, and coincidentally, um, you, you can see that. Oh, um, nice. I came across this this morning, just a pure coincidence when I was um, looking for another paper. My papers are in chaos, but um, it was, you know, the, 
I just read you some of the things, you know, the, the, the highlights, um, which included, I'm, I'm looking through at, at a, a big showcase, a diary of exhibitions and events, which took place in the Third Eye Centre in Calvin Grove Church, in, in a school and in the Mitchell Theatre and Library. There were uh, exhibitions, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven exhibitions, visual arts exhibitions. Um, and the events runs to, I don't know, about 50 events, um, ranging from uh, voice workshops, you know, to sort of articulate voice and personality, through to theatre workshops, um, arts workshops, writing workshops. And so I was naturally part of the organisation uh, and the organising, how do you say that? Organising <laughs> and organising all of that, but also leading workshops myself. Uh, wherever it was um, appropriate to do so, mm. and certainly facilitating that to happen on the ground, as it were. Right. And what was the uh, the hope impact of projectability? Where did that kind of stem from? Uh, well, um, there's a mission statement for that, which I can read you. Um, I have articulated better than I can. Names. Um, uh, to encourage the creative skills of people with disabilities and it goes on to heighten public awareness to provide a showcase for arts activities to encourage the involvement of artists performers designers to encourage consideration of the needs of people with disabilities to encourage uh, the increased provision of resources so on and so forth um, but the the important thing there was always the definition of what was then though 1983 we're talking about definition of disability it included you know it's not it's not a useful word it ceased being a useful word the moment it was kind of coined but it broadened into mental health and mental well-being as we use the term now but then it was you know there were, there were so many phrases over the years like learning difficulties learning disabilities and you know so it, it took it, the whole comfort the whole um the sort of compass of things was was taken into consideration from mental health to physical uh, ability. Um, it's, its impact, I think, is, was, was quite profound at the time. And it, it swelled over the years to sort of, um, I guess, inspire lots of other organisations which are current in Scotland today and across the UK. And have you got any of the kind of memories that jump out at you uh, about that time or or the project specifically um, yeah, but yeah but probably the only one here. <laughs> 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 uh, you know i mean the the, the third eye center at the, at, at the time was um a very mixed sort of place you know it was it was home to a lot of artists a lot of uh um strange people who also didn't fit in anywhere else as well as project ability and so on and so a lot of the anecdotes which are possibly not pertinent to this also relate around the bar of the Third Eye Centre. Um, where, you know, um, you have to help people. Um, I remember one particular artist who um, still works, she lives in Dublin, um, was born, you remember, um, thalidomide. Um, that, that disgraceful episode in these islands. Um, so she had no arms, but um, we had, you know, we <laughs> Yes, it was very funny, uh, challenging me to drink, <laughs> to drink a dram with my feet and not use my hands. Disaster. So stuff like that, you know. 
nice some kind of social and fun aspect of it social, as well absolutely <laughs> absolutely but you know a bit alcohol fuel <laughs> yeah um and so the work that you created whilst uh, being part of Project Ability, as well as the work that other people created there, did that have any impact upon you or your idea of mental health um, and your mental well-being? Uh, yeah, because, um, you know, I, I obviously one thinks about these things. And as a writer, I was thinking quite deeply about my own work. And I, I was paying attention to um, how I felt while I was writing. And as a result of having written something, and I, I began to realize the, not necessarily only the, the, the sort of therapeutic, you know, I mean, I have to write. I, it's a compulsion I have, but also the, um, the, the sometimes cathartic possibilities of writing. And I began to sort of explore that uh, in my own work. Um, and uh, at one point when I had a sort of uh, my own personal breakdown, um, I wrote a, I wrote a, a series of poems about that, which were published as a book later. And I realized that, yeah, well, shit, I got that out of my system. You know, I still bear the scars and I still bear the, um, the residue of that time. But, you know, just speaking about it, being enabled to speak about it uh, as an artist uh, in something that has a permanent record, I felt was, or even not a permanent record, but just, you know, just making it happen um, out there was, was, was a wonderful thing to do, to be able to do. And that's when I realized that, yeah, that's something I can share with other people as well as put into practice for myself. Was there something about that uh, group or that environment that kind of made you change your own understanding about the cathartic uh, experience of writing that you maybe hadn't realized before or arts more generally perhaps? Um, I have to pass on that one. I'm not really sure, you know, I haven't sort of considered, I, you know, everybody you come across has an influence on you. And I guess the, you know, they, for the time, 1983 and subsequent to that, I mean, that wasn't the only thing. Um, it, it, was, it was a sort of, I don't know, it's difficult to express it. It, it. it was a bit of a bubble that we were trying to burst. Um, we, we kind of, um, met with each other, you know, all the time. We worked together, we played together, um, and we, we were supportive of each other, you know, before, <laughs> before the word became fashionable, you know. We just like, <laughs> helped each other like friends do, you know. Um, and I considered everybody who came across my, uh, across my path at that time as a friend, uh, you know, because they, so many people became friends and so many people um, express their notions of what the arts had been able to do for them, just artists and people who wouldn't uh, necessarily classify themselves as artists. Mm. And during that time, as well as uh, previously when you had worked with uh, the people that had uh, used alcohol and uh, drug as what was the what was the more kind of public discussions and views of mental health that you had heard or uh, other people discuss okay, at the so time? It, 1983. Outside that, outside that, 1983. We're talking about approaching 40 years ago, and there were a whole number of sort of epithets. Uh, you know, the world was a very different place. Um, people were not always looked on kindly with. Uh, uh, you know, and, and 
the you know the the discourse in the media um, involved a whole lot of uh, language which had to be got rid of, and of course that's my field, you know, language among others. Um, so the terms that were used to uh, denote people who were different from the perceived norm were, without exception, pejorative. And that's the kind of thing that you know everybody had to contend with, you know, whether it was mental mental difference, if you wish, or physical difference, or and a whole pile of other things like you know gender and sexual difference and um, you know racial difference and you know whatever the hell else. It wasn't 1983 wasn't a pretty time, um, despite the the strong efforts of various groups which all in many ways acted within their own spheres. You know, like, like if you were for racial equality, that's what you were concerned about. For example, and the notion that, um, you know, the experiences of people of color might also lead to mental difficulties and mental ill health wasn't really considered, you know. So there was no overlap between the, the various groups of people fighting for uh, equality for, for their own uh, with their own people. Mm. Mm. It was difficult. Yeah. And you said there about uh, the media obviously using uh, language nowadays that we would uh, hopefully, well, hopefully they don't use anymore. Right. Um, or, but do you think it was discussed frequently or do you, do you feel that it was nowhere near discussed as much as what it should be, whether it was incorrectly discussed or uh, discussed with compassion? I... I I think it was sometimes discussed with passion, compassion, but that was a sort of minority discussion, series of discussions which took place. The mainstream, mainstream media then, as now, was concerned with, I'm a cynic, I would say bread and circuses, you know, distraction tactics away from the issues that um, most folk are, are facing every day, and, and particularly these days, you know, um, not to mention... Um, uh, it was never mentioned. It was never mentioned in the context of which it was important, which was for us anyway, um, the context of politics, unless it was something that was uh, militant, strident, and um, and then again it was, you know, sort of like there were these strange people. Um, for the most part, some people tried to understand what was going on within those uh, those protests, mostly, you know, attention grabbing uh, escapades. Excuse me. And um, yeah, um, the, 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 the compassion of few um, were exactly that, few. And they had no, no, no power, no influence, no nothing. Yeah. And what, how do you think attitudes have, have changed then when it comes to discussions around mental health? Well, we no, no longer use uh, the terms we once used. Um, and I think everybody is aware of these days, everybody I speak to is aware, and, and you know that that in itself is difficult. But um, that the figure is one in ten people um, has a mental health issue, um, and that is like you know the the tip of the tip of the iceberg because you know I, I, there are so many people who don't go around thinking even that they have a mental health issue, um, but on examination and on self-examination it could be discovered that they have and they're, they're just fully functioning with it. And it's something they've learned to uh, live with. Like you learn to live, if you drink too much, you learn to live with a hangover the following day, you know? It's something <laughs> that happens. 
it doesn't, you know, there's no notion that there can be cause and effect and that you can deal with something. Um, so I think the one in 10 figure, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, the sort of awareness has grown through that kind of thing, the notion that many more people are suffering from one form of illness or another, whether it's mental or physical, but also the, the, the figures that come out from time to time about, for example, suicide, you know, particularly in Scotland, particularly a lot of, among men in, you know, in Western Isles, in, in farming communities. And then notions that um, mental health is, affect, affects so, so, so many uh, women, particularly, and children, uh, through the issues that were never discussed back then of uh, domestic abuse and coercive control. Um, it's a thing which I find particularly distressing. Um, so I, th I think awareness has, has changed quite a bit. Um, but it's only through pressure groups, you know, it's not something that um, is brought to light by, uh, until recently, brought to light by um, uh, governments, quangos, the national health. Um, I think, you know, it, it just didn't exist, but it does exist now. And it's for the better. The change is so treacly slow, but it is happening. And so you're saying the pressure groups, so kind of outlier groups, um, have put pressure on mainstream media, and do you feel that that's what has mainly contributed to the increased discussion? Yeah, absolutely, but not just not just pressure on mainstream media, but people demanding uh, action on their health and their mental health uh, okay. and their other kind of rights. You know, of the NHS, of social work departments of local government and of national governments. Uh, that's, you know, now Scottish government, which didn't exist then, and the UK government. Mm. Those birds trying to get in the window. They're such idiots. They take such a long time to get out. <laughs> Not to, to come in, you know. Come anyway, back sorry. In. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, so, Apart from the groups that you were involved in, uh -huh. was there uh, other groups, well, obviously I say involved, I mean, kind of worked within, uh, mm. but was there other activity and arts groups that you were involved in, uh, maybe as kind of somebody that partook um, instead of kind of um, organising at the time? Well, I consider myself to be one of any group I lead. I consider myself to be a, a sort of participant as well. Somebody has to facilitate, somebody has to sort of like look at the watch and say, we've only got five minutes left, or, you know, you've speak, been speaking for a very, very long time, Mosex, uh, you know, you, we need to sort of speed things up a bit. You know, so that's the role. But, you know, if I ask people to do stuff, I don't ask them to do anything I wouldn't do myself. And in fact, that I don't do myself. Mm. Um, you know, that, that sort of led to, um, you know, various things the project ability led me also on to various other organizations like survivors poetry scotland um, which was about the survivors the survivors of the health system uh, whether they were physical or at that time predominantly uh, survivors of the mental health system um, who had who for the most part um, considered themselves to have been damaged by that system hence the term survivors mm. And so we held enormous numbers of workshops. Uh, again, I was instrumental in the writing side of things um, to get that off the ground, but also a whole series of publications 
um, which were kind of democratically decided on who would get a publication of the groups of people uh, who self-identified as survivors. And um, uh, a magazine which I edited, but which I edited in a kind of democratic sort of fashion. Um, you know, you can't, you know, you have to have a casting vote. Um, but, you know, what, what should be inside a magazine can be a matter for great discussion. And, and you know, it, it, it was a sort of a, an empowering thing for all of us because people felt that they actually, they were achieving something and they were putting it out there as, a, as an or putting it out there for the public. And it was stating the case. Mm. So Survivor's Poetry Scotland, although it was ostensibly called Poetry Scotland, Survivor's Poetry Scotland, it embraced a whole uh, kind of hinterland of writing, you know, from journaling to, to prose to, um, uh, well, you know, painting as well, and, you know, arts, because some people didn't consider there to be any distinction between what they did, you know, on a page with words or, or colour. So, you know, we, we sort of moved up into that. Mm. And so you said magazine, but do, was it a collection of the, everybody's works? Or a collection of everybody's works, yes, that was, that was one side of it, but also uh, pamphlets and designed books, books, small books, pamphlets and so on, designed uh, by one single writer with input wherever it was required by, by them. Um, but so the books took all kinds of shapes and sizes, uh, but they contained only the work of one writer and that writer had uh, a complete control over it, okay. apart, from, apart from that. Well, sometimes including the financial side of things. But they were given a budget and they were told, you know, here, see what you can achieve and what would you like to publish of your own. You know, it's time you had your own publication. And so where was it that you then distributed these pamphlets or magazines and books? Uh, they, they, they were on sale. Generally, they went on sale at uh, festivals, book festivals. Um, they were on sale in one or two bookshops, one or two places in Glasgow. Glasgow at the time and Edinburgh was full of independent bookshops, which were all canvassed, you know, including secondhand bookshops, antiquarian bookshops, but also mainstream bookshops. Back in the day, there, was, there were a couple of John Smiths here and there. There was uh, Autocars, there was um, Borders, you know, and um, obviously um, uh, the one that we're left with, you know, Waterstone. Um, so they were all major bookshops which sold those publications. Not many of them, but they took them and they did sell them. And, uh, and uh, art centres. And uh, how is it, um, well, you said uh, the Scottish Poetry, uh, Survivors Poetry Scotland, sorry, were uh, people that had been, uh, had experiences with the, the, what was it, the National Health Service at the time but, or the mental su uh, health support systems at the time? Well, there was very little mental health support system at the time. The all mental health issues were dealt with by the NHS and uh, social services. And so, <laughs> sorry. No, no, go on. How was it that you uh, connected with those people? Was it... Um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with, with difficulty. <laughs> no, because they all uh, had then and still have enormous uh, workloads, you know, and... Um, limited resources, limited financial resources, limited time to discuss different approaches that might be taken. But so it was a process of um, engaging and demonstrating that we could um, actually 
achieve things on low budgets, um, but with demonstrable results. Hence, things like, um, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. You froze there for a moment. Oh. <laughs> uh, no, I mean the screen froze. I don't mean you personally. Um, but we could, you know, we could demonstrate that things could actually be achieved, which added to the well-being of the people that at that time we were dealing with, who were self-identifying as survivors of the mental health system. System. Mm -hmm. Um. And. This Scottish Poetry Scotland, uh, obviously you mentioned the CCA for uh, projectability, but what other places were you able to meet and uh, discuss the work that you were, that you were doing with uh, participants as well as other uh, workers? Well, um, Survivors Poetry Scotland um, ceased, base, ceased being, was, was not based in, um, in the CCA, in the Third Eye Centre, um, because it went bankrupt <laughs> about that time and it was bailed out and became the CCA and it, it, it went in a different direction. So we found premises in um, a Baptist church, which had a lot of space for hire, you know, and um, the fact that it was a church is neither here nor there, but that's where it was in Glasgow, within Glasgow. Um, and it had a large uh, church hall, uh, which became the focus of our workshops, events, exhibitions and so on, but exhibitions, and workshops took place across Scotland at that time, you know, from Dundee to Aberdeen to obviously Edinburgh, Glasgow. Um, uh, you know, as, as people got in touch with us, there were various smaller groups of people who set up and self-identified as survivors who then got in touch with Survivors Poetry Scotland. It became a much broader, kind of <laughs> broader church, if you like. Um, but there were events elsewhere in Scotland that also, I can't remember all of them. Right. And how was it that um, you managed to, to fund that type of work then, uh, whether it be kind of hiring out the space or uh, publishing the pamphlets and books, all, et cetera? All, all of our events were free and it was financed by the then Scottish Arts Council, uh, Glasgow, um, I can't remember, they had so many changes of identity, but the sort of cultural wing of Glasgow City Council um, there were tiny, tiny funds coming in from sort of public health bodies. They, but the major one was the Scottish Arts Council, and, uh, as I recall it, and, um, and Glasgow City Council. Mm. Was it uh, simple enough to get that funding at the time, or was it, um, was it tricky? Um, no, I think in some instances, certainly with the Scottish Arts Council, we were knocking on an open door. And Glasgow City Council, I think, as I recall, needed quite a lot more um, arm twisting, um, but they saw the benefits long to longer term, you know, and continued, continued their funding as did the Arts Council. And then, you know, there, there are other avenues, sort of like charities that deal with this, uh, these, these, you know, this, this kind of, these issues, if you like, mm -hmm. um, which we were able to sort of discover and uh, latch onto and work with uh, subsequent to that. Mm -hmm. Did you see any or have you experienced any differences when uh, trying to gain funding from uh, then until, well, throughout the time period of uh, working up until now when it comes to arts and, and mental health? Um, I, was, I was never, you know, fully engaged, obviously. Um, I had a hand in it, but I was never fully engaged with the fundraising side of things. Um, it's not something that I enjoy, but I have done out of necessity sometimes. Mm. Um, but 
from it, from what everybody is telling me these days, um, it's become easier to discuss these things and people are willing, you know, you, the, the door is wide open, um, but nobody has any money anymore. Um, you know, arts funding right across the board has um, decreased uh, really, really dramatically uh, in, well, in the 21st century since the, since the millennium. Yeah. So the challenges have uh, kind of always been there, but just in different forums then perhaps now it's more generally for all that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's easier to explain where you're coming from to people and, and they, they get it immediately because of what's, what's happened over the past 45, 40 years. Um, but, um, you know, they, they, they sort of like are forced to shrug their shoulders and show you their empty pockets. Mm. They're, 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 some of them can be really, really sympathetic and some of them are able to find tiny amounts, but um, not a lot. Um, and when it comes to um, both Projectability and uh, Survivors Poetry Scotland that you've mentioned, mm. uh, the audience of the work, um, did that vary quite greatly or um, was there a different audience uh, that you were aiming to talk to each time? It would depend on what the event was. It was always aimed at the general public as well as uh, people that we uh, were working with. Um, so in, in those early days, it was to get things into the public, to get things discussed in the mainstream, as well as uh, being of assistance to people who might need it, including ourselves. Mm. Um, later on, I began to work um, in, in, in a sort of different sphere uh, with um, taking it directly uh, as a commission uh, with another artist. A uh, visual artist. I was uh, sort of, you know, a writer, but also a visual artist. Uh, and we went uh, to create commissioned work and uh, have workshops within hospital situations themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was very interesting because we directly engaged with uh, patients because that's, that's what they were in hospitals of various kinds. Uh, nursing staff, and doctors and consultants, all of whom attended workshops or at the very least discussions when they were able to alongside in some instances their patients and the first, kind of, first kind of dialogue which had taken place many of the time directly in that kind of way and so when um you were talking or aiming to talk to the general public and then when you were uh working within the hospitals and discussing uh art and mental health with nurses, doctors and patients. Did you find that there was a, a change in, in what you did or, or how you looked at your work? Was there some, was there a different aim of it or was it overall still a wider discussion of mental health? Um, it, it, it was, there was a wider discussion of mental health, but also there was, for me at any rate, an increased, an increased awareness of how, because we were making permanent artworks, myself, uh, and uh, uh, an artist uh, based in, in, in Edinburgh, man, by the a wonderful artist, obviously, by the name of Donald Urquhart. Um, and we were both forced to sort of consider not just what patients in a, in a particular hospital might, um, might be feeling and thinking, but what they might be seeing by virtue of their medication 
and, and a single a single simple example would, would probably suffice. You know, it's not always obvious that when people are heavily medicated, they, they withdraw. You know this, I'm sure. I mean, it's common knowledge now. Um, but when, when they, you know, and exercise becomes a difficulty for some of them because of the medication, our work and our observation of these various physical manifestations of the way people approach artworks led us to do various things like entice through art, enticing people out into hospital grounds, wherever it was safe for them to be. Or sometimes people, horrible word, had been sectioned. They were, they were locked away except for an internal locked vaulted courtyard but you know that was a little open space in, in many of the places we visited and worked so we led people into the open air we led people to observe and, and participate with artworks in the form of walks um, but with things like milestones along the way which didn't state explicitly you've come you know this is this is your your big walk for you this is 50 meters from the hospital ward we, di we didn't say anything like that, but there was an artwork there, which was a target. And there was another one within view, which led them to do the 100 meter walk and, and so on and so forth, you know? So there were permanent things also, which allowed them, allowed patients and doctors, that's what I mean by them, to take those walks and their, 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 their vision was directed upwards rather than most people, you might have observed if you saw most people, um, look at the ground in front of them when they're walking. They don't, they don't study, as people during this lockdown are doing, uh, they don't study the birds and the trees and, you know, the natural phenomena of the world. So we try to encourage an outward looking perspective uh, wherever we went. And of course, the audience was ostensibly the patients, but that had its role over in the staff. But it also had its role over in families and friends who were visitors who took all those experiences back home. And somehow that kind of filtered in through the general public, through families, through friends, through children visiting uh, particularly. So there were, were, were artworks which kind of did that inside on the walls in various media, but also permanent works uh, in, in, in the grounds, which, which were um, a direct result of observation and discussion and experience of people um, within those hospitals. And so was that your first experience of creating art um, as perhaps some sort of therapeutic relief for, for people? Within hospital um, settings, do you mean? Well, just, in, yes, in hospital settings, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the, art that I'm, the, the kind of artist I am, uh, I work with um, natural objects, I create. I, I wouldn't say, you know, I mean, some people say I make gardens, well, I do that, but it's... It's artworks which involve plants always. So, you know, and, and obviously there are a whole other areas that you could usefully discuss um, and, and visit about the therapeutic side of um, um, growing plants on people with mental health issues. Um, mm. So, you know, that again is another side of what I do. You know, the environmental and ecological side of things feeds into the art that I make. So I had always been aware that I, you know, clearly, I felt a lot better when I'd spent the day in the garden than when I'd uh, been chained to a desk, as it were, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's an observation of my own. And, and, and um, yeah, it, it, the, the first concrete realisation that that could be therapeutic was in, in the hospital setting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
not just for me, but for other people. Mm. And what was it that, um, what was that reaction uh, from the patients that made you, you feel, you feel like that? Yeah, I'm not sure I understand. Sorry, so you said uh, the first concrete realisation of seeing that um, those had an impact not on just yourself, but other people. Mm. Uh, but what was it that you, that you ex experienced from the patients oh, or the doctors? Uh, well, essentially feedback. Right. You know, people, people would say why that they had enjoyed something and, you know, we'd, we'd pursue the matter a little bit and say, well, why? Right. And in various ways, people would say, because uh, it makes me feel happy. You know, in, in you know, in various sort of like long-winded ways or short-winded ways, but that was the, that was the upshot of it. It takes me out of myself as another uh, another kind of bit of feedback, and, and and those were intentions. You know, those were our intentions, and we were delighted that it had, in some small ways, perhaps worked. Mm -hmm. And was there uh, challenges uh, working within a hospital setting that <laughs> feels like a bit of a no-brainer, but? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse my language, fucking bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Have you worked at all with the National Health? <laughs> oh, you know, you have to speak to sort of 17 people to get one result, you know, across mm. the board, whatever it is. And it's always met with suspicion, you know, why are we putting money in? <laughs> how will it help? Uh, basically, how will it help? So, yeah, bureaucracy. But also we came in one hospital in, we, we were in right at the beginning, Donald and I, excuse me, Donald and I, in the transition between, in, uh, in Dumfries, between the, what was then the Crichton Royal and the new hospital that was being built because the Crichton Royal was a Victorian building and deemed not fit for purpose anymore. And we had it added, we had added difficulties as a result of being on site almost from day one with architects, with landscape architects, and not all, not only them, but with the builders, you know, I mean, had to sort of like sign in, wear hard hats. And, you know, we were, we were viewed with um, great trepidation because, you know, people, ah, and, ah, yeah. So those were the problems, mm. basically bureaucracies. Mm. And so was that, sorry, you were mm. working from, you were saying day one at the Crichton Hospital. So were you, mm. be, were you being uh, asked for your input on the, external areas of the hospital as it was and the internal, internal and areas of the new hospital because it was a transition so we started at the Crichton Royal or Royal Crichton whatever the hell it was called in those days um, knowing full well that there was a new hospital being built further up the hill at a place called Mid Park uh, which came to be called Mid Park Hospital um, in the grounds of, a, of an old um, an old uh, I don't know what to call it mansion I guess, which became part of the offices of the hospital. Um, and we, we began by speaking to patients, doctors and staff in the Crichton and walking around the grounds and seeing and asking what people's feelings were about being moved, you know, among all of those people and what were the elements that they, they if they possibly could, they would retain about the old hospital uh, to take with them into the new hospital. And a lot of it was to do with space because, you know, I don't know if you know the history of the Crichton, but um, when it was founded, right up until recently, it, it dwindled a bit. But the, there, was, there was a theatre run by the patients themselves exclusively. Um, there was a whole focus, and this is where language has changed 
a whole focus on arts as therapy. So it was a real challenge. And there's a whole archive to this day in, in Dumfries Town itself uh, called the Mad Art Archive, um, which has um, paintings, writings. They published uh, a book, uh, a series of magazines and pamphlets and books. They wrote plays, acted in them. These are all the patients, not the staff. They were encouraged to do this by the staff, but also they were encouraged to, because Crichton was a very big area, um, and there was a home farm which belonged, and they were encouraged to get out there and do all those things, like working with animals, working uh, with, with various crops and in the vegetable gardens. And right up until we were there, um, there was, no, obviously there was no farm any longer, but their patients were encouraged wherever possible, wherever feasible, um, to go and, and work within the garden. So many of them had deep and fond memories because most of them were long-term patients. Um, they had deep and fond memories of the grounds and the garden. And things like, we tried to carry over things like sounds. There's lovely water sounds in the old grounds of, uh, of Crichton. You know, there's, there's a, a stream runs through it and it was channeled and a couple of small waterfalls. So people would sit by those and, you know, bird songs, what you can't, you can't transport bird song, but you can water sounds in some way, and you can bring over aspects of the outside of the grounds, you know, which people, people um, had enjoyed mm. and were apprehensive about. So we tried to allay all those fears and apprehensions um, with their input, you know, if you'd like these things, how can we work it? And we managed to sort of, yeah, not just help people to go outside, but there is, I don't know if it still exists because we're talking a few years back now, but there was a garden that patients um, made for themselves there, you know, um, mostly flowers, but some um, herbs and um, vegetables, which were, you know, eaten and cooked on the, cooked and eaten on the premises. So, uh, you know, um, I've lost track of your question. Actually. I know, that's interesting. And so was that, um, was that an exception that they had, uh, that, that they had such a big arts department within the hospital as well as their garden, or was that something that was, seen somewhat frequently throughout other mental no, I, I, uh, health I, hospitals? I, I think it was unique and groundbreaking right, okay. uh, at, at Mid Park at Crichton. Mm. Uh, we, Donald and I did things subsequent to that in, in, in Glasgow and in uh, Dundee where we worked with um, uh, Dundee CAMS, you know, the children and adolescent uh, mental health uh, place there at Dudhope, I believe it's at Dudhope, was it? I can't remember. Uh, the actual, you know, I just went there, you know, I didn't take a walk from the train station, as it were. Um, and so they, they kind of adopted that approach, and um, we worked with um, uh, somebody who was brilliant at fundraising uh, and um, allowing us just to get on with the work, uh, mm -hmm. an organiser and great arts administrator, a woman by the name of Jackie Sands, you know, we, we, I think we made a, a terrific team. Um, kind of making outreach work as artists with her facilitation via funders. Um, she took care of all that side. And we just, we just listened to the patients. We worked with the patients and the doctors and the staff as a result of our experience at uh, Mid Park in Crichton. Mm. Um, but I think Mid Park was really groundbreaking. I don't know if it was unique or not. I had worked on other things in a very small way in Glasgow, Springburn. What was the hospital there? Ah, yeah, you know, um, uh, on, on small things, but it, it wasn't part of the core of what was being done at any hospital at the time, as far as I was aware. Mm. 
so we were able to sort of move that forward. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And what was it that, um, or why is it that you think it's important that, that mental health is covered by, uh, by ART from your experiences within the hospitals as well as within the other organisations that you worked within? Okay, well, I can say quite clearly, A, it's fun, B, it's healing, C, it's challenging. People with mental health issues are not always challenged, you know, it's all sort of, it's frequently, all too frequently, although it's changing, cotton wool. You know, obviously you need to be aware of triggers, but, you know, if you just present something, if you throw it down on the ground, literally, as a work of art, I mean, you know, a sculpture or something like that, a way marker, whatever it is, people have to sort of confront it, or not. I mean, you know, they're free to ignore it, but many more people react to it and, 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 and react with it. And there's, there's a mild confrontation there, you know, um, which is intentional. Um, but, it, you know, at its heart, it's, it's to be playful and therapeutic. But it is also a challenge to engage with something when you're unfamiliar with the arts. And that is, a, that is a path, you know, that's the first step on a path to having fun, to self-realization, to healing, uh, and to, yeah, if you want to put it this way, to greater compassion, mm. both for doctors, families, general public, and patients, whoever they might be. Have you ever had to convince a participant <laughs> of the, the benefits of... When- who have, who have the benefits? Uh, a participant or a patient, perhaps, um, no, no, of getting no. involved. No. Um, no, no, because it's always and must be entirely voluntary. People mm-hmm. sometimes are referred, if you like, and we make it quite plain that, you know, in no way are we medics. We're no way staff of the hospital or, or whatever, and they're free to come and go as they please. And it's... Some people are intrigued and they sit around and you know, they'll, they'll, they'll go out without a word or sometimes they go out saying, this is not for me. And then a curious thing happens. They see the fun that is related to them by fellow patients or whatever, wherever they mingle. You know? And they think, hmm, I, I want some fun. And they kind of creep back. So it's, um, but there's never any kind of uh, attempt to... Uh, get people to, to, to come along and, and participate, you know, not, not on our part anyway. I mean, it, it doesn't work, you know, you can cross the phrase, you can need a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. It's counterproductive if people feel they're being coerced into something or persuaded. And do you think that's maybe part of the, the appeal then, the, the easy, the access to whether it be writing or uh, creating a piece of art that whether you're great at it or whether you're not so great, everyone can still attempt it, is that? Yes, right. yes, 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 yes. Uh, everybody attempts it. And the, the other part of that is the complete lack uh, on the part of, say, Donald and myself or any other facilitators or makers of, of judgment. You know, you have, you have created something. That in itself is wonderful. Mm. You know, the poet, the, 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 the Scottish poet, um, <laughs> Uh, Alan Jackson, um, he wrote a, a tiny, tiny poem um, many, many, many years ago, which, which holds true for just about everybody, but I, I like it for its fun. And it goes, you know, I'm quoting from memory, so it's something like, Glasgow is full of artists. They're all three feet tall and eat sherbet dabs. He's <laughs> 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 you know, about children. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it, that's the case across the board and, 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 and um, 
other artists have you know have, have stated something similar like joseph boyce for example you know his, his, his sort of mantra was everybody is an artist so the act the simple act of creating something whether it's you know a sort of a, an abstract colored painting or you know a, 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 a sort of three-line haiku you know it's good enough to have made it you know we're not talking about we're not talking about um, the criteria that critics might have. We're talking about the act of creation. We're talking about process, not only principally process and not only product. It's mm. interesting. Mm. And so how do you think then arts has contributed to the way that we now view mental health or we, we now discuss mental health? If at all. <laughs> Although I'd hope so after this conversation. <laughs> well, I, I think it has. And there have been various, various movements, which you know, some of my colleagues have been involved in uh, across the years of getting the art of people who have been um, categorised in a very different way as artists. I mean, in, in Italy, for example, it's not quite the same thing, but the Arte Povera movement was about making things, making art, from ordinary everyday objects and you know poor materials, povera, poor poverty, um, which artists have always done, an awareness that you know you don't have to be art school trained, you don't have to work you know as a painter with oils on canvas and so on and so forth, and then the worldwide movement, which also had its um, had roots in somebody like Joyce Ling, with whom we worked, um, and sort of outsider art, you know. I mean, she worked in Berlin, as, as I did myself under her kind of auspices, under her introduction, um, with prisoners, you know. So the, the net stretches uh, so that more and more people are discussing art and what art might be, and mm. who might be capable of making art. And the answer to that, of course, is, well, you know, as children, like, uh, Alan Jackson was, was, was referring to, we have no inhibitions, you know, we can pick up a paintbrush or a chalk and make a picture. And nobody says that's rubbish. Everybody says that's wonderful. You know, it's the act of creation, even if it looks slightly strange to adult eyes. And even if it looks as an adult, what we make might look strangely, uh, slightly strange to other adults. It doesn't matter. It's the act, it's the process. So that process is being discussed more and more in the art world. Um, it was very, very little discussed when we discussed when we started this kind of interview. Um, we were talking about the, uh, the very early eighties, and now here we are. You know, so many years on, the discussion has moved and grown, which is you know a great thing to see. Mm -hmm. And do you think um, that there is a, a role within? Uh, tackling discrimination against mental health for, for the arts. Yeah, because everybody is um, slowly admitting that um, within the arts, that's a little more difficult to quantify, but people are more aware that there might be somebody who is suffering from you know, um, a mental health issue within their family or among their friends, particularly now, you know, among lockdown, where, you know, everybody's sort of like oh, tweeting and you know, everywhere on social media, um, Instagram, everything, you know, people are, are discussing their mental health. And it's a big thing in, in, in uh, right across the media at the moment. Mm -hmm. Whether that filters through to, I mean, people are being creative and, and we never kind of restricted creativity to the conventional types of things. 
but a rather a creative attitude to where we are in the world. Mm. And that would include, um, you know, I work, for example, in, um, with um, Down syndrome people um, in oddly, <laughs> I don't know how it happened, in the Glasgow Nautical College, as it was then, um, which had a learning kind of outreach. And they were as, you know, some of those people were as eager to bring me a cake that they had made in the kitchen, which they had created. It's the same process as, you know, something I had asked them to do um, along the lines of, you know, if you feel like it, uh, do me a drawing for next time I come, you know. And so a cake would take the place of a drawing, you know, very frequently. And it was that that we kind of encouraged. Um, so I, I think the more people come into contact with, um, things which bend received wisdom about normality, the better it is. And the more people come into contact with the creations of people who have previously been considered to be outside the norm, the better it is. And I think that both circles are widening. Uh, it's very, very much in Scotland and in other countries. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm principally concerned in that field with, with Scotland, although I, you know, I, I, I work across the world as a writer. Um, I don't always get into that, but um, into that side of things. But um, I, I see the results, you know, of people who do yeah. work in that field in other countries. Um, and sorry, Joe, you just mentioned uh, the lockdown and just out of uh, curiosity, do you think when we see the end of this and we come out of it, there will be something about a shared experience that will be that will allow a different discussion with mental health, or do you think it won't propel the discussion in any way? That's a sort of sixty-four thousand dollar question. Yeah. I want to think that it propels the discussion, and I think it will. It will. I think it will, because you know, in in so many fields, um, it's happening that. People are waking up. I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the question of, you know, when people are locked down, there has been a, quite a rise in, in, in reports of domestic abuse and coercive control and all kinds of coercive behavior. Um, but I think the real thing is not going to be felt for maybe 10 or more years, maybe sooner, I don't know. But this is particularly affecting children and younger students, you know, older students, you know, university students. Um, nothing much has changed. They still can have online lectures, Zoom discussions, and, you know, they're, they're barred from actual physical libraries, but everything's online. And you can certainly order books if you have the money from, you know, whoever is your favorite um, bookseller. Um, but I think, you know, th th this is making huge impressions on younger students barred from school and seeing what happens at home and seeing their parents coping well or coping badly, but also how they feel and how they are going to view things, you know, about this, this strange period of isolation from their, from their peers. I mean, you, you possibly don't know, I live on Butte, I live on an island, and we have so much empty space here, you know, so, not empty, but, you know, so much open space where kids could play, but they still don't. They don't play together. In all these weeks and weeks and weeks, I've seen only a couple of kids getting together, and they were playing shinty, um, but they never approached each other. They were just, you know, punting the ball about with their sticks. And that was only a group of four or five, you know, they, mm. were, they were being socially distant. This is going to have a profound effect 
on so many people, but particularly on the kids. Mm -hmm. So the upshot of that is I, I think people will look at things differently, you know. Oh, I hated that because my mum and dad did it when we were at home, locked down, and there was no alternative. Why can't we think a little bit differently? And thinking differently is the key to it all. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And you mentioned there about the, uh, obviously this having an impact within five, ten years down the line. But what do you hope or what do you think will change for mental health and arts in Scotland within that time period, if uh, you can predict that? <laughs> um, I, I think there will be, there has to be a change in attitude of um, providers, if you like, and, 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 and those people who who offer or oh, <laughs> never offer it, but are persuaded to part with money, like Creative Scotland, <laughs> like uh, local government, um, but also like, um, you know, it doesn't always have to be money. It can be um, the opportunity. We have a hospital here on Butte, and I would firmly like, I would very much like to see them offering a bit of space. You know, I mean, there are other, other, other ways of going about it, but hospitals can open their doors. Um, to, you're aware perhaps of the art in hospitals, um, the whole thing where um, artists can just offer paintings, sometimes they're bought, sometimes they're loaned, um, to hang in wards or corridors, you know, I mean, this is one way that no money needs change hands. Um, hospitals themselves don't have to pay, but they can be offered uh, musicians, writers, artists to work with, with patients um, in those places. Um, and I think that if funding is available, if funding is forced to be available, I think there will be bigger discussions about where Creative Scotland is going, which, it, which has been a major funder over the years of, of the arts and the arts with mental health. Um, and I, you know, at the moment, I, I do know that they are going through a period, yet another period, one might say, um, of reorganization. And they're going to be forced to take into account things which they have never taken into account before. If funding is available, um, then there's going to be a growing demand for um, the arts and mental health issues to be addressed mm. you know, together as a bundle. Um, and so it, it's one of those snowball effects, isn't it? You know, the more the, more the demand is, is recognised, the greater demand becomes. And do you think as well it'll be, I mean, uh, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier about uh, the fact that um, when it was discussed in media and things, it's rarely discussed by politicians. Um, mm. Obviously, it, it's still rarely discussed by politicians, but hopefully a little bit more frequently than previously. Do you see that increasing with uh, things like Creative Scotland pushing the agenda on their side as well? perhaps when they open up to uh, the idea of funding more opportunities like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, can you tell, perhaps you can tell me, do we, in, in Scotland, do we actually have a, an arts minister anymore? Yeah, you oh, see? Not we, sure. We should yeah, know. That's one we? to find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there used to be such a person, it used to be Fiona Hislop, but she's taken a different, uh, you know, a different direction these days. And I, I think at the moment, you know, it's, it's all a bit subsumed with what has taken us over the past sort of decade, you know, those, they have not been major 
uh, it's not been a major focus of discussion in, in, in the Scottish Parliament. You know, it's been, hasn't it been independence, it's been Brexit, and now it's coronavirus, you know, and, and everybody says, oh, we'll push that back a bit, we'll push that back a bit. But, you know, when we return to physical and social discourse, as opposed to, you know, via Zoom or whatever, however limited that might be, people are going to start discussing ways forward. And I think the Scottish Parliament will start discussing that. Mm. You know, there has to be a close, there have to be close links between Creative Scotland, artists and the Scottish Government, which after all, uh, funds Creative Scotland. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, has to, there have to be more creative solutions. And within that, there has to be the experience of people who have been like, like for example, <clears throat> survivors poetry. You know, there has to be the voice of the people who are at the, uh, as everybody says these days, at the front line, not just the nurses, but the, the users of various services. It has to be driven from a lot of, well, obviously only one person is in the steering wheel, uh, at the steering wheel but many people, uh, hmm. Uh, are you still there? Or have you gone? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm still here. Right, I've got the thing telling me to reinstall uh, Chrome, which I'm not going to do. Um, oh, okay. Well, there you are. That's you back. I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Technical difficulty. Difficulty. Uh, well, yeah, it happens, doesn't it? it? But it was Google, not not Zoom. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I think, but I think that you know that discussion is going because. I think it will filter through to all the other kind of political discussions which are happening, you know, around what is going to be looming within the next couple of months is mm. end the Brexit thing. But, um, if and when that, and if and when the independence uh, movement um, ends or whatever, you know, <laughs> what your predilections might be, um, then things are going to have to change. You know? mm. I think this, this, this coronavirus thing could well be the, uh, one of the tipping points. Mm. So we've actually covered all the main points of the discussion, but I just wanted to check, is there any um, projects that you worked uh, with that we maybe didn't, uh, didn't naturally come up in the conversation that you would like to discuss? Um, I, I, not really, I suppose. I mean, for, okay. for some years, I was um, the uh, writer in residence at Botanic Gardens in Glasgow, and that led me to a lot of things but also to opening um, uh, workshops and events, book launches and public events where people are invited to come along and do things like one year we had uh, a Valentine's tree. I don't know if you know that some of the remains of St. Valentine right. are lodged in, or were at the time, in a little dusty old casket in a church in Govan. Totally bizarre. So mm -hmm. I, I found this out and we decided that there should be a celebration of this. And people from hospitals as well as the general public took part in things together and that was my intention you know that nobody was treated as not being a member of the public as a general public you know there's no such thing as the general public it's you me and somebody in the hospital we're all that person <coughs> um, so I had a whale of a time at the botanic and I was in my element you know working with 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 people that you know were in some way perhaps disadvantaged or uh, patients of you know various hospitals with children with um, oh, so many people wonderful artists and uh, writers and plants you know 
Um, I personally made things there, like the Bernard Poetry Garden, inspired by Japanese, the year of Japan, 2000. Gosh, it's 20 years ago now, 21. Um, and, and so on, you know, but it, um, that, that was one, that I was there, I was there initially for six months, and that was when I got involved with um, um, asking for funding, or somebody else asked for funding. I said, you know, six months doesn't even cover two seasons in a garden. You've got to do this for at least a year. Mm. And they came back to me and said, right, well, we'll give you three years. So I was there for three years, um, making artworks, working with the public, working with plants, creating gardens with all of those people uh, and the curators and gardeners. You know, it was just, it was just a tremendously energizing time. And that is one aspect, I guess, that's what I'm coming to that I haven't discussed through any of these things that the arts is not just therapeutic. It's not just about the process. It's about the tremendous energy that arts can And it's a, you know, it's one of those things which is so nebulous. The more energetic you feel, the more you're able to energize those around you, whoever they might be. Mm -hmm. And that's another wonderful thing, the energy that arts can bring. You know, nobody questions feeling uplifted by a particular song or a particular piece of music. They just are. They don't say, what's this about? You know, they don't say, how can we fund more of this stuff? They just love it. Or not, you know, but um, everybody, uh, you know, there, there was something on the radio yesterday, and I love the piece of music with which they introduced it, but it gave me one of those wretched earworms, you know, and I was sort of conflicted, you know. I have to stop singing the first bars of this damn song, even though I love it, you know. So there's an energy there, which is both, sometimes irritating because I didn't want to be energized, but I was, you know, and that's, that's the possibly, you know, as well as participation, as well as process and sometimes product for me as a professional, the product is important, but the energy that one draws from the process and is, is tremendously important, mm. whatever I do. Mm -hmm. And do you think it's, so obviously botanic gardens, uh, especially in Glasgow, have a lot of art weaved through the uh, the space that's there um, but do you think it's important then that a lot of these public spaces kind of includes uh, different art sculptures uh, so on so that the general public can come into contact with that on a day-to-day -day as part I, of it? I, absolutely you know I mean I'm sure you've traveled other countries and you know where you see public art and it's it's it's, it's way different from what we have in terms of number um, you know, in, in George Square, we've got, you know, mostly, well, I, th I think they're all men, aren't they? Um, up on plinths. Yep. And this, is, this is Scotland and Glasgow's idea until very recently of public, of public sculpture, of public engagement with art. It's kind of worship of our ancestors, you know? That's rubbish, you know, let's have something. And then, you know, things have been appearing, you'll have seen them, seen them you know, around the... Um, I don't know if they're still there, probably not. I've not been to Glasgow since the beginning of the year. I can't get off the island. Um, you know, the Urwali uh, things in, in, in um, Buchanan Street, and, you know, they're across there in other cities as well. Um, whatever you think of them as works of art, you know, they engage people. How many people have you seen taking selfies beside Urwali or whoever else it is, mm. you know? And Dundee itself has a, a good history of public art. Um, you know, I noticed that many years ago, and, it, and it's continuing. Mm -hmm. uh, Dundee is, is sort of reinventing itself in that way. And anything that makes people smile, want to take a selfie, or 
you know, the kids can climb over or whatever in the way of public art is therapeutic. Mm. It's creative. It's energizing. And so that is great for people's well-being. You know, if you feel good walking the streets, that, that is a big, big bonus. You know, it's a huge bonus. I mean, I feel great walking around on Butch, you know, because every day the, the, the dog, big dog, he needs a lot of exercise, but he exercises himself. But we don't see anybody. And I love that. You know, but I also love being energized by walking about whenever I can in Glasgow, you know, you know. Um, yeah, in the city centre, I go mostly in the city centre, I visit the uh, Botanic and mm. sometimes, sometimes Byers Road, I used to live in the West End myself. Mm. Um, but it's whatever energises and for too long, town and city planners have not regarded what it means to be a pedestrian in the streets of a city or a cyclist, but you know, primarily pedestrians because it's very difficult to, to be, you know, should we say a young family, you know, uh, with a couple of wings. The mental well-being of pedestrians in city centres is something that's going to come to the fore because already people have, councils, city councils have pledged to uh, increase, intensify bicycle lanes. And that means, you know, greater space for pedestrians. Look at Sophie Hall Street. You know, that's a good example, whether you like it or hate it. It's much more friendly and cycling um, pedestrian and cycle friendly than it was, you know, even yeah. five years ago. It's great, you know, it's terrific. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that. And within the discussion of what are our city streets for, is going to be a discussion of mental well-being, mental health, mm-hmm. the arts that can work with that. I'm not a great fan of enormous works of arts, like the Angel of the North, you know, that's great, that's fine, it's wonderful, but you can't actually engage in it. You can still only look at the damn thing. You know, so these big things, mm. big artistic interventions, they might put a smile on people's faces, but you, you can't really take a selfie with the angel of the door. So it's those small interventions in streets which are going to aid, not just in the, in, in the well-being, but people are going to ask, begin to ask, how is this happening? Why is this happening? And how can we make more of it happen?